Beginning this week and for the next few weeks, Adventure Rider Radio is coming to you from the road. We're on our own overlanding adventure and probably be that way for the month of June or most of the month of June. So no longer am I sitting in a studio inside a building. My studio is now the great outdoors. I'm sitting by a beautiful lake with gorgeous sunshine streaming down after we've had some heavy, heavy rain in the last couple of days. And we're looking at a forecast of some gorgeous weather. So here it is, Adventure Rider Radio from the road. Today we're going to be talking with Melanie Copeland, who's taking her autistic daughter on a motorcycle adventure to Africa, of all places. They're going to load up a Ural motorcycle with a sidecar and head off to, well, one of the most adventurous continents that we have. We also have Alisa Workala, who is a Spanish teacher and motorcycle adventurer, who's traveled extensively in South America, and on top of all that, she's managed to pay off incredible debts in a short period of time. So she's got some really good comments when it comes to finances, and especially when it comes to financing your trip. So you'll definitely want to stick around for this. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And motortour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.motortour.com. Motortour. Ride, share, connect. That's www.motortour.com. Africa is arguably one of the more difficult travel destinations by motorcycle. And Melanie Copeland is planning to take her autistic child on a motorcycle trip to Africa. I'm speaking with Melanie Copeland from Hampshire in the UK. And Melanie has a trip planned for herself and her autistic daughter. She's taking a, a sidecar and going to Africa. Melanie, can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, the, the plan is, is to take a Ural and a sidecar with, with my daughter from East London in the UK to East London in South Africa. And that would be going through Europe and then across to um, Egypt and down the east side of Africa. So big trip. Now, Melanie, a, a lot of people won't get what the uh, the difficulties may be with a trip like this. What is it like to travel with your... Well, first of all, tell us about your daughter, her age. She's She'll be 10 when we leave, actually. Yeah, we'll be leaving in December this year. So your 10-year-old daughter with autism, yeah. what's it going to be like to travel with her? What what are the, the problems that can arise? Um, well... The general problem would be will be the autism in the sense that it's for her and her life experience becomes very confusing both in her understanding her senses and and the information she receives there and then her ability to then communicate um, what her needs are or what it is that bothers her and uh, and you know attention deficit will definitely be in there she you know she'll put up with so much and then that will be it. She'll have enough. So we'll have lots of stops along the way, I'm sure, and uh, so that she can recoup and, and get her energy back and focus back and her desire back to do the trip. And uh, it should take probably about nine months is what I'm estimating, nine months to do the trip. Can you tell us what it's like um, to have autism or deal with someone who has autism? Um. I suppose from from the perspective of an autistic person and, and what their life might be like is um, uh, and the best example I can give is 
it's like hearing a tap dripping, I don't know, five metres away through three different walls, so three houses down, for example. You can hear the tap dripping. You can hear it so loud that you can't actually hear what's happening on your own TV. And that is really frustrating you and it's upsetting you, but you have no way of really coping, first of all, with the emotion of of being upset but also how to communicate the fact that you are upset in a way that somebody's going to be able to understand you. Um, and the fact that it involves actually communicating to somebody can be overwhelming in itself. So from an autistic person's perspective and from her perspective, it, it, it's very, very overwhelming experience to be autistic. Um, I think from my perspective as a parent, and I think the best example for anybody who's a parent out there is, yeah, imagine you're teenage child and then rank up that volume a hundredfold and yeah you, you'll start getting the the experience of what it's like to to parent a child with autism and then you you can't reason like you normally would i mean when my no. my teenager gets upset and flies off the handle i can get a certain amount of um, reasoning ability there but you don't have that option do you no not at all um the first thing, if if things get really out of control for her, is the first thing is to get her to calm down and to be as calm as possible. And often I find that it's normally the next day is the time when she's actually approachable and I can speak to her because to let go of that thing that has upset her is really hard. And even if she's calmed down, it's going to still be very sensitive and sore, if you know what I mean. So you really don't want to be going into that kind of conversation with her on the back of her being upset either so yeah and what do you hope to accomplish with the trip when it's all said and done for both yourself and your daughter Sophia um for Sophia for myself I suppose it's 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 going to be a growing experience and I think it's a huge achievement for me as a mother to to give my daughter this type of opportunity even um for Sophia I see you know, this enormous um, potential in her and a lot of that's being held back by the autism, the fear and the anxiety. And a trip like this will help her to overcome a lot of that and give her confidence in herself as sort of a big process of self-discovery for her of what she's actually capable of that she can then take on into adult life. So, you know, she will have her fears and anxieties as an adult, but she'll always have this trip to sort of look back on and say, wow, I did that. If I could do that then, I can do this now. And hopefully we'll give her that confidence to actually, you know, probably step outside of her comfort zone more as an adult than she will otherwise do at the moment. And on your route, you're connecting with other autism societies um, and uh, sort of stopping by to maybe give them some inspiration as well? Absolutely, yes, yes. Um, raising auto uh, awareness for autism, I think, is is... I mean, it's a wonderful story to do just that. And um, so even in the UK, we're working in with the National Autistic Society. Um, we haven't got down to particulars yet, but we're still talking about uh, possibilities of how they can use the story. And then the same again as we go through Africa. We've already hooked up with uh, the Egyptian Autistic Society, so we'll be meeting up with them. And basically what I'll, you know, what we'll be doing is making ourselves available for them to use us. So it will be either, you know, meeting other parents of children with autism and or maybe they want to do some sort of press or media coverage because it helps with general awareness. Because Africa is a very, it's, you know, it's still very superstitious in a lot of places. So things with any kind of mental disorder or illness is often considered to be some sort of black magic and, you know, and it scares people and, and really to get the message out there that it's not scary and that, uh, you know what, these children are just like any other child on the planet. It's just their volume is a lot higher. <laughs> and, um, and you have to work a little bit harder to understand why that volume is so loud. Yeah. This is a, a huge trip for anybody. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's impressive. I, mean, I would have loved it if my mom had taken me on a trip like this uh, with a sidecar motorcycle. But uh, Africa, why, how, why did you choose Africa? It just seems like such a, a massive goal. Um, I was actually born out there. Um, I was, yeah, I was born in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, as it was then. So I have some affinity with Africa. And, uh, and for me, I know it sounds a bit, you know, I think 
some people who are widely travelled as well might think I'm being completely nuts. But for me, actually, I feel safer in Africa. Um, with all its contrasts, um, it's, you know, I understand it so much better and understand why it's there. And I know how to communicate there better than I would know how to communicate in South America, for example. So, um, and it's just, uh, you know, in terms of diversity of life and diversity of experience, I think, you know, one of the things for Sophia has been, you know, is that she's, her mind is very fixed. She's flexibility. And this is true of a lot of autistic children, flexibility, even adults, in fact, autistic adults. And, you know, you can normally, it's one of the best ways to see it. <laughs> autistic adult is the inability to be flexible in the way that they think, you know? So if one person does one way, they find it very difficult if it's different from the way that they do it or they perceive it or how it should be. So this is also a fantastic opportunity to expose her to a real broad variety, you know, of experiences in one trip that, again, I don't expect her to, to understand it all and absorb it all in one go. But those memories will stay with her and there'll be things that will help to teach her later on in life as well. So she'll process that, process that and hopefully it'll help her, yeah, with that whole growing up experience. Maybe she won't be so teenager when she's a teenager. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> no, I live in hope. I jest. But, um, yeah. Yeah, Africa's an incredible continent and, you know, Yeah. I think it's an amazing opportunity for your daughter, Sophia. I think it's also amazing for other people with autism out there when, they, when they're going to see what you're doing and think, wow, you know, like that sort of really pushes the boundaries for, I think probably for everyone's thinking to the extreme. And it's great to see that. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's a real, yeah. that's an inspirational thing well, nowadays to see. You know, I, I actually, I homeschooled Sophia for a, a couple of years, actually. And, um, you know, it was... I, Certainly the, the second year was probably the hardest year I've ever lived. It was soul-destroying because of the intensity of the prison, the autistic prison that, you know, we were living in, if you like. And I can really relate to a lot of parents out there who struggle, you know, struggle with accepting the child as autistic and then dealing with it and the, and the constant... But, you know, you feel as a parent the constant failures, the failures, the failures, you know, and then you've got your child, you know, screaming and yelling at you again. Oh, it's just, it can be really soul-destroying. So I think there's a part of me that really wants to sort of reach out and say, you know, there really is light at the end of the tunnel. There really is a life out there that you can live if 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 that's what you want to do. And your child can do that. You just have to plan it differently than you would. You know, I think most people, I think people are very insensitive maybe to their kids, you know, to normal kids, because you can literally pack them in a car and off you go, you know. <laughs> yeah. With an autistic child, you've got to introduce them to the idea that they're going away, you know, months in advance, you know, and then what's going to happen. And, you know, you have to really prepave a trip before you take a trip. And then when you're even taking the trip, you have to think about, yes, all, you know, all the contingencies that, you know, of all the scenarios that might upset them or what have you. So, um, which is going yeah. to be a handful in Africa. Yeah. But, you know, that's one of the things that's lovely about a Ural that's, you know, I haven't mentioned in my, my blog post when I talked about the, you know, which bike is that, um, you know, they're real attention grabbers. And that, for me, was a real plus about it that um, that people smiled when they see the bike. They want to talk to you and they want to know more about it. And it's a real platform for Sophia. She'll she'll love that. She'll lap it up. She'll love to be able to tell people what's what. You know? <laughs> and I think you know that's going to be a big part of it for her. You know, and um, confidence inspiring. Really, yeah, yeah. Tell us about this bike and why you chose a Ural. Well, um, the Ural is... The wonderful thing about a Ural is that um, taking away the last few years of upgrades, it's, a, it's effectively a bike that hasn't changed its build since the 1940s or 1930s, actually. So um, 
which, which is a huge advantage because that means it's still fixable. It's a little bit like the Skodas and the Ladas of 20 years ago. You know, you, you, didn't matter what happened, these things would run forever. And um, whatever happened, there was always a spanner that could fix it because it's, you know, it was, they maintain that very simple design. And to me, that's really important because when you're out there in the sticks, in the middle of nowhere, and I have no mechanical experience, and obviously I plan to improve that over, over this planning time that we have, um, but I can't possibly learn everything about an engine. I need to have an engine that, you know, I can roll into the, the next town and, you know, hand over a spanner and someone's going to know something about it. And they do. There's always somebody who does, particularly in Africa, because they have to recycle everything. So, um, so Ural's great for that. It's also it's it's built for that type of environment as well for the rough roads. It's a good, hardy, sturdy little bike. Uh, it has reverse gear. Now that's something that's really kind of handy with the sidecar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's two wheel drive. Two wheel drive, so you get the um, the that extra benefit, that extra safety net. I mean, one of the first things as I was first starting to plan the trip was, uh, oh, you know, what happens if we get stuck in sand and there's a hungry pack of lions like <laughs> a few yards away? <laughs> what do we do? You know, because you can't outrun them. You know, hey, hang the on, car, whose, you know, whose the scenario are... was this? Was this yours that you came up with? Or is this <laughs> Sophia? <laughs> No, this is mine actually. <laughs> Shh, don't tell her. You know. So, um, so when I heard about this two-wheel drive bike, I had no idea it existed. But when I heard, it, I was like, "Wow, that's amazing!" Because you always know that if you're stuck in sand, you'll be able to get out. You know, even if it is, you know, with a rope and all the rest of it. The point is that two-wheel drive just makes that difference between being stuck for two days and stuck for a couple of hours. Yeah, and of course that's why they they made them up like this for the military. Is they're just a very yeah. versatile vehicle. Well, the the neat thing is people who are interested in this can not only follow along to see what's going on, um, but they can also contribute because right. I see you've got a GoFundMe going, which is doing very well. Um, yes. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, so at the moment um, we are fundraising for the trip itself, and. Um, but ultimately what our goal is is that uh, we actually raise enough funds to um, be able to give out grants to help other children or adults um, either get special skills that are related to their particular interest because that's actually their particular interest is often where their talent is and is very rarely explored to the extent that they need it to be explored for a job. So it would be nice to have a grant that, gives the, that allows them to get that extra training to explore those interests or to go on, you know, you know, if there's an autistic child or a very brave parent who wants to take their child somewhere and, um, and it's, you know, it looks like a good plan, then I think they should be given the opportunity to do it. Because I think, you know, too often we look at the cage and we don't look at the opportunities and it would be nice. And that's, that's no fault of anybody, you know, finances are tight, particularly these days, and it would be really nice to sort of be able to give that opportunity in the same way Sophia is receiving it. So so that's the plan. So we've set up the charity. Well, we're in the process of setting up the charity and um, and that should be completed actually in the next week. And uh, yes, so all funds for the project will go into the charity and then uh, that's all managed by other people. I've nothing to do with it really except to make sure that the money's raised and uh, to far exceed our goals and uh, be able to have this ongoing grant system which we will hopefully be working through schools and the National Autistic Society. How does and then someone... the big plan is to go international in 10 years' time and take over the world. Sorry. <laughs> and you'll have lots of bikes and lots of sidecars and be yeah, taking you know. autistic children all over the place. And that's kind of cool, actually. That'd be neat. Yeah. You know, I really, you know, these kids are so precious. I mean, they they have the hearts of gold, you know, and it may not look like it when they're in a full meltdown tantrum, but they have such special little hearts. And when they smile, my God. It's as powerful as the tantrum, but the opposite, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so um, they're just amazing, amazing kids, and, the, and they actually have so much life and hope in them 
that it's, you know, to give these types of opportunities where they can really tap into that and experience that for themselves is, oh, it would just be amazing, really. So please, everybody, help us create this better world for autism. And the web address to go to to read more about it and make your donation is uh, www.gofundme.com and then forward slash Africa with autism. That's it. Do you have a blog as well? Yes, you do. I know yep. you do. Um, we have a blog. It's at www.toafricawithautism.com. And um, if you want to catch up on articles about the trip and the lead up to the trip at the moment, there's a tag there. And underneath that is actually the route. So you can actually see the route we're going to take down through Africa. Um, yep, yeah, another bits and bobs shopping. Of course, we're selling t shirts. We have our own logo, so please, by all means, um, buy yourself a T-shirt, tote bag, and and a mug for yourself and your friends and all your family. Christmas, That's Thanksgiving, say, holidays. Any reason you can think of, buy one. <laughs> well, I mean, that's great because they, they get something for it, right? And, the, and then they're helping exactly. the cause as well. Uh, this exactly. is fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to following you on this. Um, hopefully, we're going to get some sort of um, road report from you while you're while you're you know, on the trip and certainly when you get into Africa. And our listeners will be able to catch up on you and find out more about that. Yeah, yeah. And we will have, uh, we do have a YouTube channel, channel set up. There's not a huge amount on there at the moment. You can see everything on the, the website at the moment. But we will be putting regular updates on there and um, during the trip of, of, you know, where we've been and what we've been doing. And also Venture Bike TV will also be, you know, showing some films of us as well. So so lots are go- is going to be happening. And obviously the radio, we're going to be here and giving some updates. So, so it would be wonderful. And, uh, you know, I hope as lots and lots of people are are going to follow us and uh, enjoy the story, more to the point. Melanie, we wish you the best of luck and we look forward to getting some updates from you on the road in Africa. Okay, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Melanie Copeland from the UK and you can find out more about this incredible trip by going to her website, toafricawithautism.com and that link will also be in our show notes. Now we're going to talk with Alisa Workala, who is in Australia at some remote location because there's a generator running in the background to keep her power going. She's on a satellite uplink for the internet and the signal, well, it sort of fades and comes back and she calls it the outback, but she's saying maybe they don't. Well, you listen and be the judge. It's a good story, so it's worthwhile hearing. I'm Elisa Workala. I'm from Seattle, Washington, and I'm currently um, fun employed. <laughs> Fun employed. employed. That's good. So describe what fun employed means. Um, Fun employed? Well, I'm um, technically unemployed, but having a great time and really enjoying it, living living the the life, not having to work full time. Well, from what I've read about you, you've not only done some great motorcycle trips here that that we're going to talk about today, but you've also done one of those rare things I think very few people on the planet have been able to do in their lifetime, and that's manage your finances. Yeah, yeah. So I have worked really hard the last few years to to just manage things so that I'm not, um, you know, having to work full time and having to stay in one place. So I've been really lucky that I've been able to do that. Let's start off with you um, giving us an overview of your motorcycle adventures. I started motorcycling mm, just maybe three and a half years ago. Um, First bought my um, Honda Shadow 750 to cruise uh, up to Canada to visit my my partner Tom. And so put about 6,000 miles on that bike the first year I had it, um, riding around BC and Washington State. And then I flew to Europe and bought a KLE 500. Um, Austin Vince helped me arrange that, and his um, wife Lois were really good about uh, just you know helping helping me get the motorcycle, the paperwork, stuff like that. Um, 
so I got it in London and rode south through Europe through eight countries in about two months. That was my big, my first big motorcycle trip. And then um, to Australia, where I bought the Super Sherpa 250 and rode 5,000 kilometers. And uh, and then South America with, with the CGL 125, and that was that bike now has 35,000 kilometers on it. And in between, I owned another bike, a um, KLR 650 in Seattle. You've been sort of bouncing around all over the place. Um, and like I said, reading your blog, uh, it was interesting to see that you had bought a house and you managed to, to really get a hold of your finances and pay off your student loan and everything. But right now, as we speak, you're in Australia, somewhere in the outback. That's right. Yeah. I don't know if they would consider it the outback, but I think I do. <laughs> uh, I am, I think, about five hours from Sydney, south of Sydney, in the... Dua River Valley, which is also a national park, um, and my um, my partner's family owns 35 acres here of, of bushland. They call it a bush property, uh, right on the Dua River. So it's it's really beautiful, very peaceful, lots of animals around, and not much to worry about. You're working on a book, and what is that book about? The book is about the motorcycle trip through Latin America. Um, my kind of my journey. Uh, it's it's more of a travelogue than a memoir, though, uh, and it talks about the the trip itself, the travelogue perspective, but also how people are able to afford this kind of adventure. You know, a lot of the, a lot of times we hear about these great adventures that that people are able to do, and we think, wow, I really want to do that, but they don't necessarily always talk about how they're able to. I mean, how do people finance these trips around the world? If you're not wealthy or have an awesome job, then how do you how you know how do you do it? Um, so, I think that I have a lot of a lot of information to share. Being just a just a Spanish teacher, <laughs> um, not making a lot of money, but really knowing how to save and and um, how to put the money to use, you know, for, for me. And I'm a total novice finance enthusiast, but I'm you know learning as I go. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, your whole start with, with doing your finances in such a way that you're going to be uh, financially independent slightly. Um, but um, you bought a house, you had a student loan, and you managed to figure out a way to get out there and do a great motorcycle trip, and, and several of them. Can you tell us how you pulled it off? <laughs> yeah, it, how I pulled it off, that was it was um, challenging at first. I had $30,000 in student loans from my, my master's in, um, in education. Uh, and I was at a job that I just really wasn't satisfied with at the time, um, although I loved teaching. Uh, so when the housing market, when the housing bubble crashed, it hit Seattle in like 2011 or so. And uh, the houses were finally cheap enough that I was able to afford them because otherwise it's just way too expensive there for, for me, for, for a teacher to, to buy something in the city. Um, so I purchased a house that was a little bit, well, significantly larger than I had been and originally wanting to get. But I knew that it was so easy to rent rooms in your house that I would always be able to pay my mortgage. Either way, I would be able to pay my mortgage just with my own salary because I know how to be vertical and not spend all my money on other things. Um, but I knew that with that house in the location it was in, I would always be able to rent out the rooms, which... Uh, basically paid my mortgage and it actually has been paying my mortgage for the last um, three years uh, and meanwhile I can live in one of the rooms in the house so that was the biggest thing for me was purchasing the house where it, the location it's in and um, being able to rent it out but the other thing is just learning to not not spend so much money you know people are used to spending practically everything they have we have we have no savings in in uh, at least in the united states very little savings um and just learning how to be just as happy but with uh with less stuff you know with less um, gadgets for the motorcycle um i learned how to be just as happy with with a cheaper bike for example, the CGL 125 um, in South America, I wouldn't have, you know, if I if I had lots of money, I certainly would have uh, bought a um, a bigger bike. But that's what I could afford, and and it didn't detract from the trip at all, being on such a tiny little thing. So, my my biggest change was uh, starting to read Mr. Money Mustache, who is Canadian, uh, but living in Colorado. Have you heard of him? No, I haven't. 
Yeah, Mr. Money Mustache, he's got his own website. He is extremely popular, and he uh, just offers um, some really amazing, not just financial advice, but just advice on just living living differently, living a frugal lifestyle. And a lot of people hear this and say, well, I don't, I don't want to live a frugal lifestyle because that's not going to make me as happy. Um, but the whole point is just to find things that do really make you a uh, happier person. And that does not mean big house, shopping sprees, lattes every single day, uh, fancy cars, that kind of stuff. It's just about living a, I would even say more, just a simpler life. So for me, that was the the biggest change. I went from spending practically everything that I made. I was always good about saving money for travel. So I always had enough to travel during my two-month holiday during the summer, you know. But um, never anything beyond that. So reading Mr. My Mustache, I was finally able to start uh, paying off my student loans. So I, I actually gave myself one year to pay off my student loans. I converted a the garage in in my house to a bedroom and uh, was able to move there. And then that, that way, the two rooms that I had remaining paid off more than just my mortgage. It paid off my utilities as well. So I was living completely free myself. And then everything I made above that went towards my very, very basic needs and towards my student loans. So in one year, I was able to pay off my whole $30,000 in student debt, which is a lot for uh, a teacher when I wasn't actually making much more than that. Yeah, that's massive. I mean, almost anyone um, would tell you that they couldn't pay off $30,000 of anything in a single year unless you're making some really big money. You know, and, and that's the thing with, with adventure travel. I mean, it's sort of a common theme with people who go out and do it a lot. A lot of them, I mean, I can think of Graham Field, who's very quick to say, you know, I drive a piece of junk, you know, I don't have a TV and I and I don't have a lot of fancy things. It's sort of what you focus on, isn't it? Because we can focus on the fact that we'd like to have a fancy car, we want a, a fancy home, or we want the latest, greatest of everything, which is the, the way most people are living right now. Or I think, and, I, and I'm just sort of guessing from what I hear from you right now, is that what you did is you you uh, created pleasure in paying off the loan. Like you actually got pleasure from that. Is that a, a fair thing to say? Yeah, I got tremendous, tremendous pleasure from paying off the loans and also just seeing my uh, personal savings grow as well after that. That gave me so much relief and so much pleasure just knowing that I was, I wasn't just buying stuff, I was buying my freedom. Yeah, almost a focus shift rather than a fact of, because most people think of saving as painful. And I think that's probably the reason most of us find it very difficult because it hurts. You've got to do without. But instead, you focus on the things like you said, the things to enjoy in life that may not cost you money or maybe the things you already have and leave them the way they are. Instead of looking at all the latest farkles you can get for your bike, um, you know, enjoy the bike, love the bike the way it is, ride it the way it is, instead of looking for more ways to spend your money, because it's never a problem spending your money. No, people don't have an issue spending money. Saving is the hard part for a lot of people, but you know, it's just like anything else. You, you get accustomed to it and it becomes just completely second nature. And uh, before you know it, you, um, you have so much more financial independence. Well, you rode around in Australia on your, your Super Sherpa. You went hiking in Tasmania. And then after that, you went to the Americas to ride. Can you tell us how that came about? Yeah, it's a little bit sad. Um, things weren't working out for, for Tom and I at the time. We were having a really, uh, just a hard time. And so I ended up going home to Seattle over Christmas and didn't really know what to do next. And um, I knew that I probably just really needed an adventure, just something to clear my mind. And the America's trip was something that I had really wanted to do for, for a couple years prior to that. Uh, I had purchased a KLR 650 maybe the year before and then ended up selling it when I went to Australia anyways but it had, it had been something that was was definitely on my mind so I went home I was very very sad and I just thought you know I really need something big I, I was also turning 30 uh, and I really wanted to just have a you know maybe six months a year I didn't know really uh, to just do something pretty extreme and, and different. So um, while I was home, I actually asked my mom, I said, Mom, do you think I should fly to Santiago, buy a motorcycle, and ride around Patagonia? And 
she said, yeah, you should. She said, yes. <laughs> yes, she did. My mom is from, um, from Argentina. So she knows that Argentina isn't, isn't a dangerous place. It's not like other countries in, in say Central America. Uh, and that's, you know, her homeland. So for her, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like I was going somewhere extreme. It was her own country. The idea of me being on a motorcycle, she had gotten a little bit more used to. She didn't love it, but she was she was accustomed to it. But really, she just saw that I needed to, to do it. I just There was something in me telling me that I needed to do it uh, and that I needed a change. I needed, um, I needed the big adventure. So she said, you should do it. If you're, if you're miserable, if you really don't like it, you can, you can always just come home. Um, of course, my mom didn't know that in my heart I was <laughs> intending to go down to Ushuaia in Tierra del Fuego, and then turn around and ride all the way north. I, I kept that secret from my from my family for a while. <laughs> Convenient. Knowing, yeah, knowing the stress it would cause them, I, I decided not to tell them until I absolutely had to. So I uh, contacted the Australians, Kath and Rob, who I had met here in Australia, just a few months before then, really, and uh, just basically asked, hey, guys, can I can I ride some of the way with you? I didn't want to, you know, um, be the third wheel too much, but, but, uh, I was willing to willing to risk it. Uh, and they said, yeah, absolutely come with us. And, and, uh, so I ended up just buying a plane ticket, literally just sat down over the next couple of days, packed my bags and left. So I was only home for a total of 10 days. So this trip, you know, you hear people say how they've been planning these kinds of trips for years. Uh, I didn't do any planning. I, I literally just sat down, made sure that I could buy a motorcycle in Chile. That was the only thing I really did research, that I could leave the country with the motorcycle that I had bought there, because you can't in all countries, um, and then just bought my ticket and went. And sometimes that can really spark adventure, can it? I mean, uh, we've talked before on this show about over-planning, and some people get so tied up, almost paralyzed by their planning process, that they don't get out there and just do it. And sometimes, um, some people will swear by it. They'll say that's all they do is go out and wing it. What was the, someone had just mentioned to me recently, the plan of no plan. Yeah, that's, that is kind of how I function on a general basis. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at least when it comes to adventuring, I really like to just put myself in a, in a new place and and just see how I handle it, see how things go. And so far that's worked out really, really, really well. So I started in Santiago de Chile and within the, just the first week was basically just a lot of paperwork, figuring out where to go to get the bikes uh, and and the getting all of the documentation that we needed. Um, I speak Spanish, of course. I'm a Spanish teacher with family from um, Latin America. So that made things much, much uh, easier for us. So we bought our CGLs at a Honda shop in Santiago for eleven hundred US dollars, about maybe twelve fifty with um with the paperwork and, and things like that. And then we uh, just hit the road and headed south, um, kind of paralleling the Pan American, but generally trying to avoid it as much as we could. I'm kind of amazed that people take trips down the Pan American because it's so much of it's just so terrible. <laughs> so we did a lot of a uh, lot of dirt riding. We uh, got down to Patagonia and rode the uh, Carretera Austral, which is the that dirt section through uh, Chilean Patagonia. Um, it's I think 1,200 kilometers long, if I remember correctly. Although we didn't do the whole thing because you can't cross back into Argentina at the very very bottom. Uh, so then we uh, we. We crisscrossed the Andes quite a few times and ended down in Punta Arenas in Chile together. And that's where I said goodbye to the Australians. They were they were going to take a boat back up to Puerto Montt from the bottom um, so that they didn't have to rewrite all of that Patagonia section. And that's where I purchased the second motorcycle, Storm 125. So not many people go on a motorcycle trip and ride two bikes. Why on earth would you purchase another motorcycle when you still have one that's perfectly good? Yeah, it doesn't seem like the frugal option does it to have two motorbikes, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I knew it was the only way that a lot of my friends were going to be able to do it. So most people can't take a couple of weeks off from work just to meet their friend last minute in Latin America. And even if they can, they're not going to be able to arrange the purchase of a motorcycle either. So I, for me, it was just really worth it to go out, buy it. A second bike, cheap, still cheap. It was $1,700 uh, 
um, with all of the paperwork, a little bit more expensive than my CGL. Um, and that way I knew that I would just be able to sell it to a traveler up north and recoup at least half of the money that I put into it um, and give my friends uh, a really awesome opportunity to come ride Latin America and also have the pleasure of, you know, having them with me and having the company. Uh, you know, I was it, being in the very bottom of South America and looking at the map all the way home to Seattle and thinking you're going to ride that whole thing is pretty daunting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, for me, just knowing that some friends were going to meet me along the way was a, was a huge, was a huge help. It was a huge support for, for me at the time. So, um, so Tom and I had worked things out and he ended up coming to meet me in Punta Arenas and he had not ridden a motorcycle in, I don't know, almost 10 years, I think. Um, didn't really want to ride Latin America, but did want to, did want to see me. So he came down and rode some of the worst sections of, of the whole trip with me through, uh, <laughs> through Argentina, through the east, which is the Ruta 3, Route 3, which is just this awful, awful, boring, boring stretch of landscape, just infinitely long and very dull. Um, so he was, yeah, he was very, he was very great to, to come and do that with me. Uh, and he actually rode with me all the way to Lima, to Peru. We rode through the mountains, um, to Huara, uh, Huaras, the town is called Huaras, um, in the Cordillera Blanca. And then we left the bikes there, took buses to Lima and, um, picked up one of my, my best girlfriends who rode with me for the next mm, thousand kilometers or so. Tell me about the, the story of getting lost in the Andes of Peru. Are you, are you at that point in the story yet? Or does it come up after this? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was with Tom. That was a really dumb day, actually. <laughs> so we had been riding many, many, many days, or I think weeks at this point, basically on dirt roads, uh, taking as many small routes as we possibly could, because you can imagine being on a 125 in Latin American traffic on the highways with huge, huge vehicles roaring by you is pretty life-threatening most of the time. So we stuck to smaller roads where we could. And besides, they're way more beautiful, of course. Um, so we had been riding days or weeks on mostly dirt through the first through Bolivia and then through the Peruvian Andes, basically from Cusco up to Huaraz. Um, and then we just hit a day that was very, very, very muddy. There were vehicles stranded all over the roads, blocking blocking traffic because of the mud. So it took us a lot, lot longer to go that distance that we were intending to go um, than it should have. So we found ourselves basically winding up the mountains, east of the mountains, going heading west, uh, winding our way up the mountains, and it was getting very dark, it was getting very cold, but there was nothing around. This was very rural Peru. And you just passed a town that you decided not to stop at, am I correct? <laughs> well, I was going to omit that part of the story, but yes. <laughs> so we had, you did your research. We did, we did go through a town, and it was just a really crappy little town. We really didn't want to stay there. And besides, I was having a lot of fun riding the mud. In hindsight, we absolutely should have just stayed put, knowing it was maybe about three or four o'clock at that point. Knowing that it was getting late, we just should have should have stopped. But this is I, one of those points, isn't it, where that we run into where you knew full well. I mean, it's the, like you said, it's the end of the day. The conditions are, are are bad, and you don't know how far it's going to be to the next town, or at least not exactly. Those are the times where you're supposed to say, "Okay, you know, I'm playing it safe. I'm in another country here. I'm not going to ride at night." Isn't that everyone's thing? And you're on a tiny little bike, but you pushed <laughs> on. What made you push on? <laughs> I, uh, I actually really like riding at night. I know you're not supposed to, but it can actually be some of the most beautiful times of the day to ride. <laughs> I thought you were going to say riveting um, because it can certainly be riveting as you're <laughs> as you're watching for things. It is, yes, it is riveting. When you're on a 125 and you're only going about the speed of a bicycle, <laughs> sometimes I do risk it. I know you shouldn't, but sometimes I do. Um, we pushed on because I was just enjoying it so much. I there were times of being on the bike, such a teeny one, is just absolutely exhausting it's so draining 
but there was just something about it that I loved and uh, I was so hooked on it and being on the bike all day and pushing through all of that hard stuff uh, really was exhilarating to me. And the next section was going to be quite beautiful as well. Um, so we, we pushed on knowing that it was going to get dark, knowing that there was another town not too far away. However, we, we got a little bit lost in the mountains and we ended up on a dirt road heading to some insanely high peaks. The peaks around there are, I think, about 20,000 feet. We were maybe at about 14,000 feet at this point. Um, I'm curious, though, just how you get a little bit lost. Is that like being a, a little bit pregnant? I'm not quite sure how that works. <laughs> I, th- no, I, I, really I always, like... always thought that lost was lost, but you're saying a little bit lost. It was only a little bit lost. Now, now you have to remember that we didn't have a GPS, we didn't really have even very good maps. We did have a couple maps. Um, I don't actually think we even had a map for Peru. So my general mode of travel, and actually I did this for most of Latin America, was just to uh, look at my phone in the morning if I had Wi-Fi, which, uh, you know, of course I often didn't. Take some pictures with my with my phone of the, the maps that I would want to look at that day. And just basically just head in general direction. That, that would be a really crazy thing for a lot of people, but for me, it gave me the opportunity to, to just stop and talk to every single person along the way. Now, of course, I speak Spanish, so that made it a lot easier, but um, being able to just stop and uh, just just talk to people, just start that conversation was one of the best things about the whole trip for me. And that also included, of course, um, where am I <laughs> and how do I get back to uh, wherever I'm heading for the day? So, so yeah, we didn't, we didn't have very, very reliable maps. We did not certainly have a um, GPS. So we were just a little bit lost because we we knew the general area that we were in. We knew um, what route we wanted to be on. However, it got dark and foggy. So the the conditions were, were almost white out very, very, very quickly. And we could not see the road signs. Um, so we knew that we had gone through an intersection that we probably should have turned off uh, but we didn't realize it until uh, we were winding our way down a dirt road, uh, heading to incredibly high mountains with a cliff on one side. And you couldn't see more than about five feet in front of you. So that was, I wouldn't say it was scary. It was more just really, really cold. Um, but we um, we turned our bikes around, decided to just backtrack and head uh, downhill as much as we could and back to the, the pavement because we had gotten off the pavement at some point. Um, so we backtracked, we found the, the road, the paved road again, that was leading, uh, west. And then it started to snow. So at this point we really had no option, but to continue, it wasn't a very heavy snow and it was very wet. So it wasn't, um, super slick or icy out, although it was very cold. And I just remember winding our way down, down the mountain, switchbacks, back and forth, back and forth. Um, and there was a there was an oil or a gas truck in front of us, and it had these really bright red and orange and white lights on it. And those lights, I just kept on following those lights, and it was like it was giving me warmth because it was such a such a cold night. This is one of the coldest uh, days of the trip. Following that truck until they just got too fast, and um, the lights just dwindled in the distance, and I was left alone in the dark again. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a crazy memory. You're not the only one that got lost, though. I understand you came across a local with a donkey with, with traveling with That's the four right. flashers going. Yeah, so we so we kept on, and I saw this little blinking red light. And I thought, what in the world is that? We're in the middle of nowhere. And I pulled over, and this man on a donkey and a, and, a, and, a, and a poncho comes up, and he says, have you seen a woman? Have you seen a woman with her burros? I said, a woman with her burros, her donkeys? No, I, I haven't. Well, she's up in the mountains. And I said, well, we, we, we took a couple different routes up there. We didn't see any woman. And that was all we could do. We had just come down. It had taken us maybe 45 minutes to wind our way down that far. Um, and he just continued off into the night in search of this woman and her donkeys. Um, with his little tiny, tiny little red blinking light. And we, we made our way down, down the mountain until it started clearing up. And then the first little building we came to said alojamiento, lodging, on the side of the door. And we knocked and were invited in to hot 
soup and, and tea and uh, slept upstairs with um, sheep pelts drying out in one corner as we were drying out in the other. The perfect night. Yeah, it's actually one of my favorite memories. <laughs> and is that what you mainly doing as you're traveling along? You're not camping, you're staying in different accommodations? Uh, uh, we camped a lot in southern South America. So we camped as well in Peru, but that night was just way too, it was just too cold and we were soaked. Um, so we did, definitely did not want to camp that night. Well, and on the 125, you're not running any heated gear or anything because you don't have any power for it, right? No, no, no. That's right. And I didn't... Um, you know, I had my rain jacket on, I had my hiking pants, I had my hiking boots. I didn't have a lot of really fancy, nice gear. I didn't have any fancy, nice gear except for my, my helmet and my gloves. So, yeah, when it got cold or when it got hot, you really, really felt the, the weather. Um, so, yeah, definitely no camping that night. And the, the lodgings that we were staying in were extremely rustic. This one costs $3 each a night. So... Very, very budget, very budget accommodations. Uh, there was another place in, I think in Bolivia, where we woke up in the morning in this courtyard. We just had this one tiny little room that I think was generally rented to maybe truck drivers or something. Also very, very rural. Uh, and outside our window, they were butchering a, a little a little goat for the family festivities. The entire family had come into this this little um, little house in the courtyard for for the celebration, and, and we two gringos were just standing out there wondering where we had landed. Uh, so lots of experiences like that, just kind of being the only the only uh, foreigners around, and and really getting to see the the life of, of people all over the place, which is my favorite part. My favorite part of the experience. How long did Tom stay with you as you're headed towards Colombia? So Tom left in, in Peru. He had to go back and work in Canada. So he took off in, in Lima. And um, about two weeks before, a, a girlfriend, my friend Ashley, said that she would would come down. She was able to get the time off, and she uh, had one week. She was going to fly down and ride with me to northern Peru, from not from Lima, because I left the bikes in Huaraz, um, but she rode up to the border with Ecuador with me. So we spent a week together. We actually didn't ride as much as we were going to because my um my bike broke down and we we had to we had to get it onto a bus instead and take it to the nearest town to get fixed up. It was the only time my bike ever ever broke down on me besides flat tires. Um, but we ended up having a great time anyways. And um, her second day with me, she rode about 300 kilometers of dirt roads through the Andes, which was pretty. A pretty big day for for somebody who had never ridden on dirt before, and she did fabulously. Um, had a wonderful time, and then she left me in northern Peru, and my friend Justin came and met me for another week, and we rode very, very, very hard through the Andes uh, and into kind of towards the Amazon basin side of Ecuador. Some of the best riding of the whole trip, most beautiful riding, and he rode with me a thousand k to uh, Quito where he took off and my friend Adam, Ashley's now husband, uh, met up and rode with me to Colombia. Wow, that's a great group of friends you have to come and tag team with you along your adventure. Yeah, it was amazing. And they all, they, they communicated amongst themselves so that I didn't have to worry about it too much while I was on, you know, in the middle of the Andes in Peru. Uh, and they just arranged it so that, that I never had to wait more than a day for the next person to show up. So I was with them for three weeks, uh, and that meant that I was accompanied all across South America. And once in Colombia, I wasn't going to ship the bike, the second bike to to Panama. That would just be way too expensive to, to ship both bikes. So I actually sold it to an American guy who was heading south and um, continued on through Central America alone. So now you've hit the most dangerous area to go through, and you're by yourself. Well, what's going through your head at that point? You know, at that point, I was actually really ready to be by myself. Um, I I loved having my friends with me, but I also really wanted the experience of riding through these countries by, alone, by myself, and being able to navigate, you know, just do just do my own thing for a while and, and not have to be too worried about other people. You can 
guess that I was very, very concerned for the safety of my friends, especially in Peru, because the driving is so, so extreme there. Um, so that was actually quite stressful at times, just making sure that they were safe and, and basically having my fingers crossed that they would be and having to stop all, a lot and just remind them to, you know, constantly use your horn when going around the corners of Peru or else you will just get wiped out with, with drivers driving on the wrong side of the road around the uh, mountain beds. Um, so I was, I was ready to, to be by myself and, and not have to worry about um, other people's safety. Now, Central America isn't very dangerous. Panama is okay. Costa Rica is okay. Nicaragua is okay. It's really only when you get to Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala that you have to be more wary of, and of course Mexico. Um, but I had already traveled through uh, a lot of Guatemala and Mexico quite a few times as um, as a late teen and um, in my early 20s. So it was landscape that I was fairly familiar with. And frankly, I just wasn't that, I wasn't that concerned. Um, I was much more careful with the routes that I was taking, but I never felt afraid, um, just, just cautious. For example, I, I got in touch with ADV riders um, in Mexico on Facebook and in Guatemala as well. And I just basically asked, hey, what are the safest routes? What route uh, should I be taking? a solo female traveling through through uh, your country and they unanimously agreed on on a very specific route that I should take through Mexico which was i suppose not the most dangerous country but you certainly hear about it the most in, in the media so i did meet up with other travelers and um i even bought a second helmet because i ended up having various passengers with me on the motor on my little tiny 125 um in different countries so i had a a Belgian girl with me for for um, a day riding through some of very rural Guatemala and um, other just other travelers that were getting from point A to point B and I made friends along the way where none of them were on motorcycles but they would say hey we're gonna go to this town and and I would I would ride out and meet them mm -hmm. there and hang out for a couple of days and then continue on my way so what really helped me was always knowing that I had friends around. Even though I was by myself, I was constantly meeting people, constantly making friends, and just the feeling of, of knowing other people in the country, even if they're not physically with you, is very, very reassuring. I was going to ask you about that because uh, I saw that you'd wrote that, I think, on your blog. And I thought it was a really good point that you made because you, you'd made this point there and you said that it was really good to even take people's card and they say, call me when, you know, when you, when you get to a certain point, which you did. And I think you said at one point there was one breakdown where you, know, you had a problem and they were there in 20 minutes. Um, it really is important. And not only is it important to make the connection with people for your own safety, but that really, and you said this earlier, that really makes the trip, doesn't it? That, that's your time to integrate with local culture. Oh, it's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I, I'm the kind of person who, especially if I'm by myself, I stop and talk to people all the time. Uh, and people would offer me their card and say, listen, if you have any, any trouble at all, just give me a call. I'll come and help you out. And I really did use somebody's card. That's right. Um, my my uh, bike wouldn't start. I called somebody and within 20 minutes they were there <laughs> to help me with it. And that's a huge, huge relief. Yeah, it is a huge relief. Of course, <laughs> there are other times where really you are in the middle of nowhere and there is nobody around who who you who you know. And and those at those times will be maybe the most dangerous times for me as a as a female on a tiny bike. Um, I couldn't exactly you know outrun people on the on the one twenty five. Sure. Uh, so those are the times where I just tried to dress really discreetly actually more like a like a boy i had baggy jeans on my kevlar jeans boots i'd have a had a black bandana around my neck that the police gave me in colombia after they almost impounded my bikes and instead we went out and had beers that night um i had my hair tucked up sunglasses on you know if you just glanced at me at me you wouldn't be able to see that i was a was a girl um you certainly could if you stared but it was those times where, where I would stop in little tiendas or gas stations that had women and children around them, especially in 
northeastern Guatemala, which is considered a uh, considered a zona roja, a red zone. It's supposed to be more dangerous. Um, I'm not sure why. Drug trafficking, I assume. Uh, and I had gone through there to get to Palenque. And I was very, very cautious of, very careful to not draw a lot of attention to myself. So if I needed to stop for gas or for food, I would do a drive-by. I would look for women and children and I would stop in those places and I would chat with the local women for an hour and ask them about their area, if it was safe, um, what they thought about me being there by myself, um, if they thought that I should take a different route or just anything like that. Just get their, just get their advice and not even just really for the sake of getting their advice, but just for the sake of making those contacts. What did they think of you being by yourself? Most of the time, um, well, it, you know, it's, it really depends on the country. So it can be very, it's just very cultural how people react. In some countries, they just thought it was the craziest thing they'd ever seen. A young woman by herself on a motorcycle from the United States. What is she doing? You know, and I, I actually got to the point where I stopped telling people where I had come from because a lot of people didn't believe me that I had come from Chile. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, yeah, so, so I would just say that I came from the last big town which would be maybe three hours away. And they thought that was outrageous. But I had come all the way from Guatemala City to where they were. <laughs> if they had any idea of how far you had actually went. Yeah, so I, I always get a real kick out of that. Um, so, yeah, it, like in, in Central America, a lot of people did think it was quite outrageous. But other times women would say, you know, you're okay here. You just, you'll just be careful. Don't ride after 5 PM or sometimes 4 PM. There was only one time in Honduras where some women just looked at each other. When I said, is it safe for me to be here? They looked at each other and they said, well, mas o menos, kind of, <laughs> which, which means no, you know, this is that not sends a safe chills down your spine. <laughs> Honduras is uh, one of the, it is the most dangerous country in the world right now because of, um, because of the gang, gang violence is just so extreme right now. Uh, so that night, I did fork out the money to actually stay at a place that had an armed guard with a with a shotgun at the door. You know, he was he was there all night long, which is actually quite standard in a lot of Honduras. But it, it, in those places, I would I would definitely be more wary of where I was where I was staying. Uh, you also found a place where you weren't allowed to ride. Now, this is bizarre for anyone who hasn't heard this, and I didn't until I saw your story, but there's a place in the world, at least one, where you can't ride a motorcycle with a woman on the front and a man on the back. Can you tell us about that? That's right. That was in Medellin in Colombia, and I had no idea this existed either. Um, I was actually, I had met an American, and I was taking him, just dropping him off, because I was going through that part of town anyways. So he was on the back of my bike, and we got pulled over by the police. And they said to us, do you speak Spanish? And we said, yeah, we both spoke Spanish. So they said, well, you're not allowed to be riding this motorcycle. And I said, what? ¿Qué? ¿Cómo? No entiendo. I don't understand. I said, I don't understand Spanish. And he said, what, you don't understand Spanish? I said, no, no, I understand Spanish, but I don't understand. What do you What do you mean I can't ride this motorcycle? This is my motorcycle. I had all of my paperwork and my license and my international license in my hand, um, insurance ready to go. And he said, no, no, you cannot be riding this motorcycle. He has to ride this motorcycle. And I said, what are you talking about? This is my motorcycle. Anyways, we argued for a, a solid 10 minutes about why I couldn't, why... I couldn't be the one to ride. And in the end, he finally just explained that historically um, men were the shooters. So Medellin used to be an extremely dangerous, dangerous city. It got Colombia in general got quite cleaned up in like, I think around um, 2004. But before then it was, you know, the drug capital and Medellin was a huge hotspot for that. So supposedly men would sit on the back and they were the shooters. And maybe it was a man driving, or maybe it was a woman actually driving the motorcycle. But either way, they, they made this law that said that um, a man can never sit on the back of a motorcycle. If there's a man on the motorcycle, he has to be the one to drive. So I turned to the cop and I said, okay, well, I started getting off my bike. And I said, well, he can drive and I'll sit in the back, but he doesn't have his license and he doesn't know how to ride a motorcycle. 
And the cop just said, oh, fine. Okay, well, just go. Just don't do it again. <laughs> you wore them down at that point. I mean, that's like one of those laws you hear of where you're not allowed to carry ice cream in your back pocket on the weekend or something like that. It's, it's one of those bizarre things were made for a specific purpose, but may have uh, outlived its useful purpose at that point. Yeah, it it. it it was probably very important at some point um, 10 years ago, but maybe not so much these days. It was a good story, though. You made it back to Washington, and then um, and now you find yourself back in Australia. Are there plans for another trip? Oh, there are always plans for another trip. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to do it around the world trip. Um, so I've, I have been slowly ticking, this, ticking it off. This was an idea that started a long time ago. Uh, when I was actually pre-motorcycle days, I hiked across Spain and then again across France, which was about a thousand miles. It took two months. And I wanted to continue working my way east all the way through Western Europe and then across more of Europe. And eventually I got into motorcycle riding and realized I could do a lot more than that. So I did the eight countries around Europe, um, and then some of Australia, and then now most of the Americas, uh, and, and next would be would be Asia. Well, we're certainly going to have to pay attention for when your book comes out, because I think a lot of listeners will be interested in your theories or your ideas on finances and, and how to travel and, and save your money for just doing that. So as soon as it comes out, you're going to have to let us know. I will. I certainly will. Elisa, thanks very much for coming on Adventure Rider Radio and sharing your story. Thank you so much, Jim. I've been speaking with Elisa Workala, and you can find out more about Elisa and her travels by going to her website, travelbugblues.com. How cool is that? That's a neat website, travelbugblues.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And motortour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.motortour.com. Motortour. Ride, share, connect. That's www.motortour.com. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and this one in particular done completely on an overland adventure of our own. So in the fresh air, in the sunshine, in the wilderness. Don't forget to drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Send us a comment, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And personally, I will love it if you go by the website and click on the donate button to help keep the wheels turning here at Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. And we are, we are part of to ride. We're not part, not part of, are we? The boat. We are. You dick. <laughs> I'm so Mexican Adventure. <laughs> Let's do this again. I am Simon Thomas, and I'm Lisa Thomas, and we are To Ride the World, you are listening to. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. And we are To, to Ride, ride the, the World, world. And, and you are listening, listening to Adventure, Adventure Rider, Rider Radio. Radio.